Welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This is a podcast where we explore how the best B2B sales leaders make the complex simple, drive relationships and revenue, and generally elevate the sales profession. In this podcast, we're bringing together sales experts, thought leaders, top account executives, buyers, industry insiders, all to share their experiences and best practices for navigating the complex sales cycle. So whether you're a seasoned sales professional, a sales leader, or just starting out, you're going to find practical insights and actionable advice that you can apply to your own sales journey. Plus, we have a bit of fun. Randy Gerson is elite at what he chooses to tackle. A proven salesperson and influential marketer, he helps businesses grow and rapidly scale. Leading sales teams, building lead funnels, and instilling KPIs across corporations are all part of a normal day's work. His unique ability is the ability to establish and build trust with individuals in a marketplace. This undeniably rare skill is essential for sustainable growth. Co-author of the book, Leads Are Great But Sales Are Better, Randy provides timeless wisdom modified for today's sales and marketing world. And this pod will help us all get better. So let's get into it. Randy, Randy, welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. How you doing, my friend? Doing good, Paul. Uh, good to see you again and uh, good to talk to you. I'm and excited to uh, see what we explore and discover in the next uh, few minutes. Well, I think you're going to blow people away, which is uh, always a fun episode to have is when you have somebody we've been talking for for a while now. And every time every time we get together, I learn something new. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, obviously, name's Randy Gerson. Um I'm a interesting dichotomy of sales and marketing, uh, which you don't find often. So I'm a marketing exec, sales exec, uh, run my own uh, uh, small firm. I'm CEO, um, but that's only because I have to pay the bills. Otherwise, we're a pretty <laughs> level company. I have two partners, uh, equal partners in the company, Christian and Brian Carter, who you can look up, who have a lot of fame themselves. But my background in, in general is I started in sales at a very young age. I'll get into the details of that when we start talking a little more. Sold for decades and then uh, worked for a little small company, probably heard of it, called Xerox. Oh, Um, tiny, tiny company. Just tiny company, 100,000 employees when I was there. I could give you my employee number. I still memorize it because you needed that to get into buildings. There were no key cards back then. Learned marketing from that company after doing really well in sales. So I was the number one rep in the West for Xerox out of all their reps. had a very good tenure there, had some phenomenal coaches and mentors that really helped me. I was young. I was in my late 20s, uh, early 30s. Didn't realize I was at the company in their heyday uh, when they won uh, the Malcolm Baldridge Award. Uh, back then, you can look that up. It's a quality award given by the government to companies that produce quality. Uh, they were the first manufacturer to win the award for stealing market share back from the Japanese. Wow. Uh, then I happened to be on the Malcolm Baldridge team. Um, and I'll share that story when we start talking. But anyway, so I've got a vast marketing background, a vast sales background, uh, which enabled us uh, to really understand what goes on in an organization from both. And the one thing that I did realize when I graduated, as I say, or left Xerox and started doing my own thing is sales and marketing needed to be one department. Because at Xerox, it was not one department. <laughs> it yeah. was finger pointing <laughs> Sales guys saying marketing is giving us crappy leads. Why do they message like this? They're pissing off my customers, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then you had the marketing people saying, God, if we could find some salespeople that could actually close some deals, we could do better. 
And uh, those weren't the exact words, but you get the jest because I've been in both meetings. And so that really bothered me from a core sense. And so I went on a journey that I'm still on is going around uh, literally talking to people about how to make that no matter what size the company is, one department and measuring it as one funnel, really. And so all the different terms that have come in my career, come and gone, and new ones that come up, I still use that as the core base of what you have to build. So that's kind of my background. I'm also an ex-athlete, used to play on the tennis circuit back in the wood racket days. Now I'm dating myself. Wood, I did say wood, Um, (laughs) just in case you misheard that. And uh, hurt my knees over in Europe. Uh, My claim to fame is I won the qualifier for the French Open, got in, had to default my first round match last time I played professionally. Uh, wow. It's quite a long time. This is the 70s. Um, and I don't think you knew that about me, Paul. Um, no, still, that's fantastic. I didn't yes. know that. Yeah. Still very active. I played on the senior tour 20 years later for a company called ProKenix here in town. They sponsored me. And I won't get into that long story, but met the owner. He just looked me up, said, oh, I was trying to sell him some products I was at the time. And he's wanted to meet with me. I thought, great, I got a nice deal with this company. And it was reverse at the lunch. He says, I want to talk you into playing for me as a senior. And at that time, I was 38, and I'm thinking, why is he calling me a senior? I'm only 38 years old. (laughs) (laughs) My dad's a senior. I'm like, is my dad in the room somewhere? It must be talking to my dad. It can't be me. Um, I didn't know that USTA then had a circuit starting at 40 years old, uh, and every five years called the Senior Tour in the United States, United States Tennis Association, USTA. So I was still working, had my firm, had a lot of clients across the country. And Kenex put me on the road where I traveled and I played tournaments for them and they gave me rackets and clothes. And I mean, I got treated better than I did when I was a young kid. And so to me, it was kind of a a nice way to get paid to play. I didn't make a lot of money, but it covered all my expenses and even uh, I won some money. I didn't win a lot of money. Yeah. But I became a top 10 USGA senior professional in three categories in one year which hadn't been done before. Men's singles, men's doubles, and mixed doubles. Um, so it was kind of fun. I was 11 in singles, uh, number six in the country in men's doubles, number two in the country in mixed. And uh, in 2002, I hung up the racket after a shoulder surgery to repair my right shoulder. I'm right-handed in tennis and decided that that's enough. Um, now I am a senior. At this point, I was 45 and thought, I want to have my shoulder the rest of my life. I'm going to quit doing that. So currently I... Just to give you, I have a lot of athletics that keeps me young. Um, I mountain bike several days a week when I can with a couple other buddies. And mostly I ride with uh, kids because Mm -hmm. I like the speed that they go at. Not Most people my age don't keep up. And then I play men's ice hockey that I discovered at 38. I use that as cross training for the tennis circuit. So I'm still playing hockey here in San Diego. And I love that. Keeps my mind and body sharp. Playing with the young guns, or are you playing? Uh, what I play two different teams. One is with the old guys, fifty plus. Yeah. These are ex pros. They're really good. Still pretty yeah. quickly. And then I have a kids team. I call it a kids team because my number one line they're in their twenties, and they're from uh, Boston area. Uh, avid hockey players, obviously. That's a fast college level league that I still play on, and I'm the captain of. And I love it. I love doing it. So, well, you uh, one of the things that we talked about before, and I'm gonna it up there's there's two things that i think uh are discipline and joy and you're exuding you're exuding joy when you're talking about this but to be able to do that discipline is absolutely critical and so how does that help you you know in your athletic career as as long as, as well as you know 
in sales? Like how is that how is that really translated? So you know, great question, Paul. Um and I don't know if I've been asked that specifically before. So I'm one that um, people use vision maps and goal setting techniques, and we can name the gurus in that area. But I do set goals for myself. I write them down and I usually have them like uh, stickies on my machine. Like on my computer now is a couple stickies for some new goals I have. I like visually, I'm a, a visual person. I learned that I have decades ago, I have a photographic memory I didn't know I had growing up, two sided edge. Also, don't forget things that are not pleasant, but you remember everything you see pretty well in detail. And so I like to put visuals up for myself so they stick in my brain. And then I develop a process uh, to get there. And then I know that not everything in the process is going to be pleasant to do, like any process. But I know if I do them, I get the goal. And the goal is the reward. And so without that risk that comes in the middle there, there's no reward. And that's how I keep myself disciplined and focused on the target. That doesn't mean I'm focused in a narrow vision way. It means I'm focused on all the parameters that I might even realize at the time and that journey to get to the goal may affect my getting there. So it's not a straight line. It's a zigzag. Um, but you're mitigating you're mitigating risk in your in your overall discipline setting and and kind of vision setting you're mitigate, mitigating risk it sounds like with process Is correct that- correct give you an idea and i'll give you an example of mountain biking uh yesterday we rode up a trail up slightly uphill the whole way for nine miles so it was what we call a slog it's a nine mile slog uphill some mm-hmm. steep some not so steep and there were some big boulders on a single track right in the trail that got loose from other bikers that eventually shook them loose. And I'm talking about boulders the size of my noggin. Um, and if you hit those going downhill, because we're going to come down the same trail, you're going to probably flip off your bike and have a nice injury. So on the way up, we stopped at each boulder and tossed it off the trail. Um, that's the discipline. Even though we had a rhythm going, I knew I even yelled to the guy in front, stop, because he yelled stop, then he stopped. So you stay together in groups so no one gets hurt. And then I you know, remove the boulders. So on the way down, I tell them, hey, I removed three boulders. Here's where they're at. So as we're flying down the hill, we know to not go off the single track trail. Because if you do, you might hit that boulder I just tossed over there um, for that. So prevent injury. So it's that discipline to take a, the rhythm. Usually you don't like to stop for aerobic capability for hockey. Mm-hmm. But I stop anyway because I'm preventing something I know is going to possibly happen if I don't do that. So that's discipline. Be able to stop the bike. But the heart rate's going to come down. You have to get it back up again. And it may be two minutes apart where you're not even getting enough aerobic fitness for a while. But it's more safety at that point to reach the goal of finishing the ride without an injury. That's the goal. Good ride, aerobic workout, no injuries. So I can come back another day. So that's a good way to show you how I implement that in a recreation area that applies to business. Let's let's translate that then. Let's translate that and dive into when the podcast is all about sales. So let's dive into how do you define sales and then how do you translate that, what you just discussed into the sales arena? Yeah, no, another, another great question, Paul. Um, so how I translate that is once we set the goal for sales, what the goal might be, whether it's a number of revenue, number of clients, a number of new targets that we're trying to go after is we set the path that we suspect is going to get this there. Uh, Just like the single track, it changes with rain and weather and grass growing in. It doesn't look the same every time you ride it. And so you're going along this path and you measure what you're doing. And sometimes you have to, I always say this, slow down to speed up. 
Uh, it's one of my favorite sayings in sales, slow down so you can speed up. Because if you just keep going full bore, you're going to pass something important that you may want to mitigate or add to the process that's going to give you more success down the road. Um, so it's not always try to go the fastest to the goal. It's try to go the best way, which is why I said it's a zigzag pattern. Um, sometimes you have to zag to the right or zag to the left to get back on center line. If you just plow up that center line, you're going to miss all these other right and left points along the way that could be very, very important, like the boulders that I moved. Those boulders are to the right and to the left sometimes. And you have to go inspect them to see uh, what they might bring you in sales. And sometimes some of those, what I call hits, some a discovery that's huge to the overall goal long-term. So let's dive into the actual definition then. So that's the process, how we get there a lot and how we set things up. Uh, you're one of the you're one of the few that um, has come on so far and said, has said sales and marketing should be one. Like there's, there is a trend that a lot of SaaS companies are going that way. You know, I'm a chief revenue officer, right? So sales and marketing fall under me, but you're one of the, the early recognizers of that trend. So how do you define sales? And then how did that, how did you recognize uh, that trend before it started? Yeah. So I think at first kind of, uh, it caught my eye at Xerox when I was there decades ago. Mm -hmm. So this was the, you, you talk about trends. So almost 30 years ago, I started realizing there was something wrong. I didn't know what the fix was, but I knew something was off mm -hmm. uh, when I worked at Xerox in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I think it was 94, 95 when I left the company, somewhere in there. And went on a discovery journey to find out what's exactly wrong and then how do you fix it, right? And I went through a goal of, I want to fix this. And I zigged and I zagged right and left through my career in sales and marketing and try to figure it out. And this thing came about called demand generation about two and a half decades ago. And then, you know, now it's an old term, but demand generation, right? Um, and I started teaching demand generation to our clients. My partner, Chris, was the first one who brought it to my attention. He was very good at it in e-commerce. And so I took it from e-commerce and applied it to B2B because it wasn't being applied to B2B much in the beginning. And as we discovered demand generation, I started realizing that's when the process of sales and marketing needs to be one department. And here's one of the biggest reasons why is there was a big breakage between, and I call it speed to lead is my new term for that. Speed to lead. So marketing generates leads at different levels. Um, and we'll talk more about that, Paul, as we get going. But what defines a lead? To me, it, it's not what defines a lead. It defines what kind of lead it is, what stage the lead is in, who you're talking to, who the account is, and how that fits in the overall puzzle for the solution to close the deal for the rep. And so to answer your question, that's how I define sales is marketing and sales working as one speed to lead for the reps. The rep knows when that leads there and gets on top of it instantaneously. And I've actually tested that process of speed to lead at several companies. And we can dive into some stories about that. But I'm down to seconds, down to this many seconds, you lose the lead, this many under this many seconds, literally under a minute, you gain the lead. And that was my first B2B test about two decades ago on speed to lead, where I really saw the results dramatically change uh, for engagement. And that was at a company where Chris and I were brought in to be the entire marketing and sales department. It was a startup that had a lot of money. 
And Chris built out the marketing and why I worked on the sales. We uh, divided and conquered and put the two systems together. I literally programmed the, just tells you what kind of guy I am, the telecommunications closet. I programmed the software for the call center. I wrote the scripts that go in there. I was the one on the phone to start with until I hired my first person. A typical startup, right? I'm yes. wearing the, all the hats you and I talked about. Figure if I can't sell them, it ain't going to happen. Or I'm going to bring somebody even did way better than I am. And hired my first, uh, what I call junior, brought her in and showed her how. But what we did is we had a process where a person raised their hand. Um, and I'll get into another term called RTT, ready to talk lead. And that, as soon as that person raised their hand, we actually online through digital methods, we called them on the phone. Within 30 seconds or less, we know once a minute passed, the chance for closing the deal went down 70% after one minute. So if you call them within a minute, and here's the reason why, and this gets into my other thing I talked to you about, Paul, once before I briefly mentioned it, you were intrigued by it, I mm -hmm. think, um, but you can tell me more, is um, preferred form of communication. Yes. Yep. So what we tested is we had the typical demand generation model, right? E-guides, booklets, um, landing pages that look like a website, right? Hanging off the website, you know, we're using Unbounce and all kinds of tricks that Chris and I were using. And the moment somebody uh, pinged some information and we saw them download it, we actually called them on the phone because we knew and we called them on the channel that they preferred. Right. So if it was LinkedIn, they were doing this on, we'd ping them on LinkedIn. If it was the website and they put their phone number in to get the download, we called them instantly as it was downloading. Phones ringing. And most people thought Big Brother would come in and they would get pissed off. We actually found out the opposite. They were intrigued and surprised uh, that we were right on top of it. Uh, we made sure that the phone scripts didn't hard sell. They were very soft relationship building kind of scripts. Uh, to build the number one reason why people buy anything in life, including why do you go to that dry cleaner down the street when you pass five dry cleaners on the way there to the one that you go to? It's because of trust. Because you trust that dry cleaner, right? The go-to. You trust that sandwich, your favorite sandwich shop. You have trust with those things that we do in, in everyday life. No different in B2B sales. You have to trust the person you're talking to. And so the scripts are written in a way to build trust first, sell product second. And so it worked. We found out that that speed to lead time frame measuring to sales. I always measure to sales because at the end of the day, as like the book title that we wrote, leads are good, sales are better. No company's made a lot of money off driving tons of leads. They make money off of sales. Um, as long as the sales are profitable, they do very well. And so as a marketing and sales firm, we measure everything on the end of the day on the way sales come in the door. Uh, from the whole engine. Talk about this term that you developed, this RTT, the ready ready to talk. So, and how that plays into building trust. Sure, that's a that's a a really interesting question. Um, so, ready to talk means the person you're trying to reach, and let's use some older terminology that still people use. You know, you have your gatekeepers, your internal champions, your decision maker or makers committee by committee, right? Um, for that, depending on who it is, your trial referral might, might even be an internal champ, maybe someone in a different department, you need to get a referral because you're not quite sure who to talk to because it's a big entity, um, like a Microsoft or a Siemens or somebody like that, is uh, you get that person in a state where they raise their hand, they raise their hand, not you, they raise it, 
and say, I'm ready to talk to someone. I'm ready to refer you over because I'm not the right person. You approach me friendly. I trust you enough to talk to you. And so it could be a decision maker, could be a gatekeeper now willing to let you in the door. Um, when I worked at Xerox, the hardest thing was getting past the gatekeepers in my territory. That's the reason that the turf didn't do very well over the years. And I learned a very good technique from my father. This comes from, I shared this with you. He was a first responder, Navy, then Marines, then fire department. He's medical corps in the military and then fit really well in the Los Angeles County fire department. Um, and I watched my dad, uh, see people die and see him save lives and watched how he dealt with people when he went out in the community. And he always made sure the person he was talking to was the most important person in the room and listened to them heartfelt and the, the look in the eye and the, and his, uh, they call it authentic. Now is the new word. I call it being genuine, being yourself. And I always tell people you, one thing that is the, and if you take a communications class, you know, this 70% or more of communication is tone. And all the cameras and face-to-face, if you just close your eyes and listen to the person's tone, that will tell you whether you can trust them or not. You know, unless they're really, really, really good con artists, they're going to slip somewhere, you're going to pick it up in the tone um, or in the facial tics. And so RTTs are taking that person, they've now started to trust you on a certain level, and you're going to expand that level of trust. And that's how you take an RTT and have them help you if they're not the right person, get to the right people very diligently for you as if they're your neighbor. And that's what my dad's kind of said is you turn everybody into your neighbor um, or you into their neighbor, the better way to say it. And so that's kind of the, the key part of RTTs is building that neighborly conversation where you're just hanging out on your lawn and they're on their lawn and you're just chatting over the hedge or you've come around the hedge and you're actually standing in their lawn from you know, the days of my dad as he talks about it. And so I take that into sales and try to take that same mentality in the way we approach people to get to a, what I call a ready to talk lead at some level. So now they want to engage with an actual rep at a different level in the company, depending on the levels you have in your company to now engage and take it further down the pipeline. So it seems, it seems to me that at every, every point in this, and I may not be using the terms that you you leverage, but so for example, in that the previous company you started, you found that it was in that particular market. You know, you had to get to them within thirty seconds, and that was actually a trust building moment. If you got to them within thirty seconds, and then you had to have a strong conversation uh, with them, relative to strong but not pressing conversation with them to continue to build trust. And they weren't necessarily an RTT at that point, but they maybe were kind of in an RTT funnel, right? Is that is that mm-hmm. how I'm saying? Because at every stage you are trying to bring the value that develops that trust. Is that a frank? That, or is that's, that a good- a, that, that's a good, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Paul, at the end there. That's a good no. frank way of looking at it. It is kind of a separate little mini funnel within the large funnel of RTT. Mm-hmm. It's to my my point is at that moment, your job is to build more trust, to put as much chips in the trust side, because that's your best chance. You're going to accomplish two things with it. One, for sure, you're going to make a friend, mm-hmm. right? And I've created some really cool friends. Uh, the one thing I like about Zoom during the pandemic is I met some people I wouldn't have met because we we're all quarantined. Um, and so the Camerons, things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams and whatever, whatever product you use, allowed me to branch out to a lot more people. And then I was just speaking and offering free webinars on topics like this 
Um, and I built a lot of trust, with a lot of people that I'm, some of them I'm actually really good friends with that when I travel, I go see them. I'm like, I'm going to Florida in two weeks and there's uh, a gal out there and her husband who I got to know real well through webinars that we're going to get together because we generally like each other in the way we talk and think. And so it builds that trust mechanism that leverages sales in general. Um, very, very, very few deals go through that are based on some level of trust between the person purchasing or the company purchasing and the company they're purchasing from. And that trust level, by the way, can be broken after the sale. There's a whole other process after sale, as you know, Paul, that's as important as the sale itself. And the reason I say that is, uh, this is an expression I'll never forget. It takes five times the effort to get a new client as it does to keep the one you've got. And it's more expensive. And it's super expensive now. Before it was expensive. More expensive. Yes. Yeah, I could, I could tell you three decades ago what it used to cost to knock on every door, what the cost was to have a rep out in the field and knock on a door. It used to blow CEOs' minds when I'd factor it and show them their actual cost. I used to calculate that for them so they could see that because uh, it opened their eyes to the value of every interaction that they have with the customer. So this is, a, to me, it's a really fascinating conversation because I've been on a similar mission to you for uh, for a long time. I had a uh, sort of a service company and then I actually started a digital marketing agency alongside that. So we had to tie together sales and marketing, right? And But the way you define it, I really, I really, what I'm taking from it is the combination of how we as a company communicate to the market to continually develop and drive trust and then act on that trust act in a way that we continually develop that trust but then then earn it right so we're the salesperson has to earn it continually again and again so that let's take this to today like and we talked a little bit earlier about things like ai and how ai and experience with ai can just kill trust absolutely out of the gate with your with your company if done wrong, right? Um, we get those LinkedIn messages. Hey, I'm going to get you seventy new. I'm going to get you seventy new appointments in the next three days. I guarantee it, or I don't pay for it. So just give me a, your credit card and yada yada yada. You know, you get you get a million of those that you know are not developed by a person. So how do you take tools like that and continually like tweak them to develop this journey of of trust that somebody's on with the customers that you're working with? Yeah. So here's here's uh, let me get in a couple of the nuances of AI. Um, and let's talk about copy. People have forgotten this is kind of like our conversation here. It's very frank, right? It's uh, again a you can say authentic if you want to use those words. I put my quotes mm -hmm. up for that. Um, I call it genuine. I'm just being yeah. myself with you and you're being yourself and we're having a conversation and it's it's genuine. We're being honest with each other, right? You know, no no punches held. Um, and it's not adversarial. It's an open conversation, right? And even though we may have similar points of view, we probably have different points of views on things. What's happened with AI is this, and it, it ties into the whole greed in the market. People think, ah, I can get more sales and more this and more. It's the more, 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 more. And to a point where more, be, you get so focused on more and faster that you lose sight of what the goal really was. And let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about now. Detail is if the person writing the copy is not a seasoned professional or from a different culture, and I'm going to leave that at that. Um, we all know what I'm talking about for marketing there. And you're trying to cut costs because of that. You've actually cut your sales long term. 
And you may have some short-term wins in that because of volume. You and I talked about this, a pure volume, but your brand and your reputation is getting tarnished along the way and you don't even realize it. Of all the people that you alienated now because of that approach. Um, yeah, you've got some sales in the bank for the ones that what I call uh, desperate's not the word for ready to buy. They were in the market ready to, they were like on the wheel of a uh, buying cycle. We almost people don't use that anymore either, where it needs at the top, right? Someone's got a need or you need to make them aware of a need. They do some research. Uh, then they do risk alleviation, price versus value, and then they go purchase. Well, you got to pick up all the people that are at the end of risk alleviation or purchase because you're the new shiny penny that got in front of them at that point. And there's a lot of people that grab shiny pennies, mm-hmm. but there's a bunch of people that don't and have long-term memories. And so using AI might get you into that approach where you have a false sense of security that you're winning the day. And this is how these big companies you hear that are hurting all of a sudden laying off tons of people because they get fat with that uh, process. And this happened to me as well. I've seen it happen in the early stages of AI. I've been, I've been testing learning engines for a decade now before it was even popular. Met a kid at San Diego State where I was teaching a marketing class that was a graduate that got top honors for learning engine. And I'm like, what the heck is that? <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And I found out that's some cool stuff. And I hired him to start doing some work with us. Uh, so I can learn more. I wanted to learn about it. So to me, it was like a garage experiment. But what I learned is that you can't take away the human element, no matter what tool you use. AI is just a tool, like a CRM is a tool, uh, like membranes a tool, right, Paul? They're all tools, but if used wrongly, they will hurt you over long term. And it's also the same thing as sometimes you have a crescent wrench and you've got a socket wrench. And sometimes a socket wrench is the right tool for the job, not the crescent and vice versa. So you got to know which tool to use for the right job as well, that matching process, which is why not every piece of software out there is the right software. Even if it's in the same class, like you're looking on G2, right, versus a place to look for comparing software. Um, Not all of them are that comparable because they have to try to categorize everything as well for their platform, right? And so you have to think outside the box of what tool you're using in your tool shed for the right job you're trying to accomplish towards that vision I talked about before, that goal you've got in mind. So when you zig and you zag, you have tools for those. Or you go find a tool if you don't have one and recognize that's where you're at. You're not on the path anymore. You're over here on the right and you need a tool to get you back over here to the center for that. So with AI, copy's king. It's got to be mature, good copy to build that first foundation of trust. And that's where a lot of AI goes wrong. And you're right, a promising stuff in the beginning, I call that going for the jugular. You haven't even built a relationship yet, and you're already telling them what your solution does. There's no value in that. There's no trust in that. Person's not even ready to talk to you, and you're already pitching them right away. Um, you know, it's kind of like our conversation, Paul. We it started out as an AI. You didn't know it, but I explained it to you. But I start talking about my hockey and my mountain biking, how I get beat up every week. And I'm taking isobuffin because that's really what my week is about. I got a yep. bruise from yesterday, by the way, on my elbow here. Um, I nicked a bush and bruised my elbow going down fast. You know, it's just human, right? It's a human conversation. It's I wrote most of that. And then my Brian, my partner, cleaned it up nicely because he's good at writing and put it in my speech. So that way the AI was talking like I would be talking. So when you started talking to me directly, it was seamless, right? There wasn't a, all of a sudden, like, this seems different, right? And even if you can't put your finger on it, people you're talking to through digital channels will sense something's off. 
the same way as if you were talking live and your tone changed. It's no different. That's a tonal change in copy. Yeah, that, that is so fascinating to me. And I think we're gonna we're gonna need to we're probably gonna need two or three of these to really dive down. Um I wanna jump, I wanna stop and jump topics real quick because I want you to give you the an opportunity. I'd love to talk a little bit about your book, Leads Are Good, but Sales Are Better. One, I love the title. It's one of the best, best book titles uh in the past year. It's fantastic, I think. Uh, but I also just want to talk about some of the concepts that you you put together in there. So um, you have some time to do that. So do you mind diving into a little bit about the reason? Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. So yeah, it's on, you know, shameless promotions on Amazon. If you want to find it, just so you guys know, we're not getting rich off the book. We wrote it for a proof source uh, to open up conversations like this, to have this discussion. And it's something that, you know, Brian and Chris and I truly believe in. That's why we wrote the book. And I'm I'm very proud of what we've written. It's a short read, which is what I wanted to start conversations like this to actually, like you said, deep dive. Um, I talked about RTT. So that's one concept in the book that we came up with, ready to talk at different levels. And you're right that we could spend two hours just talking about different types of RTTs. And I could share examples with companies without giving their name away or trade secrets. The other is surround sound. I said trademark we've done. It involves a term that I coined a long time ago called preferred form of communication. Um, and omni-channel and multi-channel tried to approach this, and it did okay for that for a while. But I think that's gotten missed, and that only works for um, omni-channel and multi-channel. Only works for really the huge companies have a lot of horsepower, meaning capital to spend. So we do it on a very small scale. Um, And what we do is we take similar messaging, not the exact same all the time, and we surround a person we're trying to get into an RTT, the ready to talk person, no matter where they are in the organization, but they're at the right target, and try to get them to have a phone conversation or a Zoom call. And to do that, we send them messaging on multiple different channels consistently, knowing that, and I'll give you an example, let's take LinkedIn for a second. Um, Your LinkedIn habits, Paul, are different from mine. Mine are different from Brian's. Brian's different from Chris. Chris is different from Sarah's. Sarah's different from Jones, and so on and so forth. You might be on all day, someone every hour, someone once a week, someone once a month. You don't know the person you're communicating with. Same with email. The, today's email, you get, we call it the email monster, right? If you don't look at it every day, that email critical that someone sent you gets so buried in your inbox, the monster ate it up, and you have to. I mean, I've, you've said this, I know I have. Can you resend that? Because I can't find yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. that's, that's the, I have a monster. Can you give me the spoonful again? Because I can't find the meal. It's a meal's mm-hmm. gone, right? And so surround sound surrounds the prospect with physical and digital communication until they raise their hand and become that RTT at their preferred form at the time that they're ready, at the time they see the message when they're in the mode to respond. So it really let, again, it's that trust building. Instead of forcing it down someone's throat, we say, here's a bunch of messages and we know these will probably resonate, we suspect, but we're going to let you tell us when you're ready. And that's why it became ready to talk. That's where the term came from. So I have to ask you this. Do you ever recommend the goodbye email that I get like 400 times a day, which is, this is my last <laughs> chance that I'm ever going to reach out to you. And you, everything I've ever sent you before on the nine drip email, I'm never going to talk to you again. So uh, that is leveraging one of the five primary motivators. I don't know if you've heard about this before, but 
Um, people don't talk about it. In marketing, there's five primary motivators. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fear, greed, guilt, exclusivity, and the new one, social acceptance, right? All the social platforms, right? The world of influencers and things like that. Um, that's using a guilt and fear, combining the two, which are okay in the beginning of a conversation. Sometimes it gets someone off the couch, right? Apathy is your biggest competitor. It's a terrible form to use at the end of a conversation <laughs> to somebody because how many times yeah. have you responded uh, to one of those messages? Uh, the the only response I give them is thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't even give them that. I give them zero. It's like, we don't have a relationship and now yeah. you're trying to make me scared and guilty. I missed on an opportunity. Uh, yeah. that, you know, you're promising something without even getting to know me. Um, so no, I don't even respond. Most people don't even respond to those or might no, be polite don't. like okay. you and say, thank you. That's it. Yeah. Right? Thank you for but, taking me off. Don't ever respond. Don't ever reach exactly. out again. My other favorite is I, they, the unsubscribe button or the links hidden so deeply, right? We try not to do that in our communication. We try to make it easy to find because if they want to unsubscribe, we'll take you off. We're happy. We don't want to waste the energy of sending stuff out to you, please. Yeah. You know, again, trust, you're building trust. I've actually sold to somebody that unsubscribed years before that changed positions, different company, ended up being a customer. And they remembered that we made that easy. And they said, the one That's thing awesome. I liked about your communication uh, was you made it easy for me to unsubscribe. And I guess what? It didn't take six to eight weeks like you see some of those because you and I both know MailChimp or any of those, it's instantaneous you get pulled off the list. It's, it's, if not instantaneous within days, it stops the sequence. Yeah. Um, so when I see six to eight weeks, I go, oh God, now, now you're selling me a bill of goods. I definitely don't want to do business with you. <laughs> if it takes you six right. to eight weeks to pull me off a list. I am. I'm so with you. I, uh, there's a comment that I, one of, uh, our other partners, uh, it's named Bob Apollo. He, he just gave me recently on one of these shows. He was like, life is, because life is frankly too short. To work with, to try and force people to work with you that don't want to work with you and to try and work with people that don't want to work. So why don't you just work on, I mean, his point was work on your messaging, work on those things, make yourself stand out, but uh, it's too short to try and force that relationship. So I think that ties directly into what you're doing is, is, is how we, how we increase that relationship, how we increase those levels of trust, how we dive deep through, through things like all the way through copy through conversations, but the motivation is so critical of that. I'm not here to, I am not here. I am here to increase revenue for my company, but that uh, my first goal is to build, build this uh, trust with you. Yeah. And I like to use guilt more than anything. And without saying it in our communication, it's like, Hey, this guy's so nice and so friendly. I feel guilty if I don't even at least say hi. (laughs) <laughs> right. Even I'm not in the market to buy anything. So I get a lot of people that just pipe in. Like I shared with you earlier, if I build great relationships with it, we may never do business together, but man, I sure like this person. I like talking to them and be great to sit around a you know a burger or a sandwich and chat for a while because we, we think similar and we challenge each other in a nice way. Yep. Uh, and we learn from each other. To me, that's, you're right. Life is, you know, it, and, and I'm not old, but I'm not young. My dad's old. He's 88. <laughs> My dad's old. Still here. I feel pretty lucky. You know, it. it's every relationship is worth its weight in gold. That's how I kind yeah. of feel about life. And I feel that way with sales relationships. And I've, I've even had a few customers or ex-customers that I've given some money back to and said, hey, it's just not working for us. 
we'd rather have you happy. Uh, we don't have any recommendation recommendations where to go, but you deserve this refund because we you pay up front. We're not going to be doing more services. And some I've had try to stay and you're right. It just wasn't working. And so I ended the relationship for the betterment of both people. Um, I'd mm -hmm. rather do that and keep the good ones that go forward and participate fully because you have more success that way too. Um, and I'd rather have it. So I'm very, you know, I'm getting to that stage and have been for quite a while. I'm very picky who we work with. Well, I thank you. I thank you for being picky and choosing us to come on the podcast. Uh, it's been absolutely fa fascinating. And I, I can't wait to have you on again. We're going to have to dive into more of your story, uh, specifically around uh, specifically around IBM. And then you've told me a, a story relative to uh, a company you helped to build over, over the pandemic that I'd really like to get into. I think it would be really beneficial. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So any <laughs> final, any final words that you want to uh, share with the audience? Well, one, I would just say to you personally, Paul, this has been fun for me. A lot of things you could do during the day. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I love sharing uh, the experiences. And my last comment to the audience is, is, you know, stay focused and discipline. Discipline, the definition is the art of doing, not the art of thinking. Um, people mix those up all the time. Um, discipline's the art of doing, um, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, you have to do. And then I wish everybody as always the best out there and whatever they're trying to accomplish. Um, I'm a goodwilled nature person and I just want to see people do well, no matter what they're trying to do. So that's, I'll end with that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Randy. Keep shining bright. And, uh, for that, everybody, we will sign off for today's episode. Have an absolutely blessed and wonderful day. We'll see you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to the art and science of complex sales. This podcast is sponsored by Membrane and our partners from around the globe. Here at Membrane, we believe that B2B sales is at a crossroads. Due to decades of quantity-based prospecting, information overload, and really a shift towards efficiency over service and pitching over leadership in sales, customers are saying enough is enough. They're tuning out average performers and choosing to take most of the buying journey on their own. This results in up and down sales results, forecasts that are all over the place, and salespeople that are half committed due to the fact that they're having poor results and they have an inability to truly connect with customers. We believe the road successful companies are taking to combat this is threefold. Number one, training to create leaders and executives across all areas of the team with strong habits and sales methodologies that bring value. Number two, technology. Technology that focuses and helps a salesperson succeed and reinforces great habits rather than wasting their time on filling out fields for reporting or wasting their time on spamming customers that have no interest in ever buying. Third, talent. And I'm talking about talent that's empowered and emboldened to make a difference for their customers and their companies. So where are you on that journey? Membrane and our network of partners across the globe are here to help and to elevate the sales profession. We streamline critical technology by combining CRM, training and enablement, and more into one seamless platform. We drive best-in-class methodologies through our partners. They provide the top thought leadership methodologies and resources from across the globe. And our collective efforts are dedicated to recruiting, training, coaching, and empowering, and measuring the habits of the top teams in the world to ensure success. Join us at Membrane.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening.